0: Welcome to Equine Assisted World. I'm your host Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Here on Equine Assisted World we look at the cutting edge and the best practices currently being developed and established in the equine-assisted field. This can be psychological, this can be neuropsych, this can be physical, this can be all of the conditions that human beings have that these lovely equines, these beautiful horses that we work with help us with. Thank you for being part of the adventure and we hope you enjoy today's show. In the following podcast I had a long chat with my dear friend Joel Dunlap of Square Peg Foundation in California. For those of you who don't know this amazing person, Joelle, um, about 15 years ago, she founded an organization dedicated to the people that don't fit into mainstream society and how to help them learn skills and learn to thrive using horses. She was really one of the first people to pioneer this work. Now she works in the fields of autism, trauma, neuropsych, other types of mental health, And she has two facilities, one in Half Moon Bay, just south of San Francisco, and one in Sonoma, just east of San Francisco, in the wine country. And she works all over the world and educates people all over the world in this amazing work. She combines neuroscience with really good classical horse training. She provides employment for people with neuropsychiatric conditions. And she provides basically happiness and joy and the tools to thrive. So without further ado, let's find out how Joelle Dunlap does this. Welcome to Equine Assisted World. This is the first one. Really? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I have been wanting to do this for the longest time. And so that's why I'm excited. Um, For about the last four or five years, I've just, I think, along with everyone else who's working in the field, Has watched it suddenly go from a rather tight, perhaps overregulated, perhaps somewhat limited uh, field and and a rather factional field to suddenly a really wide open field. And I think what I and many like us have noticed is that a lot of people who were quietly working away for more than years, I'd say decades, um, their work has now proved itself and people are now doing studies into them. It's reaching academia and so much of what was on the hippie margins has now in about the last five years come to the mainstream, but it's still a somewhat confusing world in that, well, there seems to be the equine assisted thing. There seems to be the neuropsych thing. There seems to be the physical disabilities thing and many others. And these seem to be existing still to some degree in their own galaxies, but there are a growing number of people out there who see the bigger picture. And as we're realizing now, so many people have multiple diagnoses, so many people, they might have something physical, but they've got something neuropsychological going on. They could have trauma and something physical. Perhaps they've come back from a war zone and they're injured. They could have many multiple layers to a lesser or greater degree. And suddenly the the technologies available seem to me to be rising to meet this challenge. And I would say that of the people that I have been watching over the past, more than a decade, be just consistently effective would be Joel Dunlap of Square Peg Foundation in California. So Joel, I've got you. Finally, in front of me, I'm sitting in Germany, you're sitting there. Um, I want you to tell us who you are and what you do. And then I want to ask you a bunch of questions so that the listeners can get an insight into the multifaceted world that you work in and perhaps get some ideas about how they might explore this world as well. So who are you, Joel? <laughs>
1: Uh, I am the co-founder and executive director of SquarePeg Foundation. We started in 2004, um, and we called it SquarePeg because we wanted to, we saw a real gap between people who wouldn't thrive in a traditional writing environment and people who also weren't going to fit in, um, in what at the time in 2004 was a therapeutic writing environment and um, we we saw a, a, a bunch of people um, who weren't going to be served well in either environment um, and of course what found us in that space is autism um, over and over and over again um, but our first partner when we started square peg was a family homeless shelter in san francisco in the tenderloin in the roughest part of the city and they had a really beautiful way of looking at the homeless issue, um, that they wanted to create an environment of family rituals and joy and an experience through the eyes of the child so that the recidivism in autism or sorry, in 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 homelessness um, wasn't repeated generation after generation after generation. And that mentorship was so timely and so Helpful to us because it helped us understand the importance of environment um, and the importance of changing the way somebody saw themselves. Um, and that was that is a program called Raphael House Family Homeless Shelter. And when you think of a homeless shelter, you don't think of hopefulness and you don't think of sweetness. And here's a place where the children, they all read a bedtime story and then lit a candle and then sang their ways back to their rooms to go to bed and create these rituals of safety and of sweetness. Um, we learned a lot from them so so here we are in two thousand twenty three in twenty eighteen um, we opened up our first satellite organization, so here we are we've been operating for 16 years and loved what we were doing, didn't know how it would scale. You know, this is Silicon Valley and everybody wants to talk about scalability of operations. And we didn't plan it this way. The story that I'll share, because I think it's, it's interesting just in talking about how things grow naturally. We had a woman working for us, Becca Knopf, um, very, 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 very talented. And if I had a nickel, if you had a nickel for every resume of every college girl coming out of college who says, you know, I want to work for a horse boy foundation or I want to work for square peg, we could probably buy a pretty fancy latte. Um, but Becca sent that resume and showed up for her first day to volunteer. And within an hour, she was wearing a tutu and was back riding. Um, and we thought, okay, we have a keeper. So Becca also wanted to pursue excellence in being a competition dressage rider. So she worked for us four days a week, and then she commuted an hour and a half north um, up to Sonoma to ride with a, a Grand Prix dressage trainer a couple, well, actually three days a week. She was working seven days a week. And this woman was a was a, a mentor to her personally and professionally. And that woman, Susan Palmer, um, went from diagnosis to gone from breast cancer in four months, four very brutal, short months. And it was devastating for Becca and for her barn community and certainly for her family. And so her widower came to Becca and said, look, I need you to take over the barn. I need you to run the barn for me. So she came to us crying and said, you know, I need to honor Susan and I need to quit working for Square Peg and I need to go and run Cadence Farm up in Sonoma. And we gave her our blessing and hugs and a going away party and off she went. And about six weeks later, she called me and said, can we have dinner? And I said, well, of course. So she drives an hour and a half south and we order dinner and she starts crying. She says, I don't want to run a dressage barn. And I said, well, what do you want to do? She said, I, I won't square peg. I need square peg in my life. And I said, well, and this is a very Rupert-esque um, answer. I said, well, let's just turn Cadence Farm into a square peg satellite. And she said, can we do that? And I said, I have no idea, but I have this napkin under my glass of wine, and I'm sure someone will lend us a pen. And we started penciling out or penning out how it would work. And that's, that's, that's how our, our satellite operation opened. So we did prove that we could scale it and we did prove that we could grow and that we could go into a new community and get the trust of the autism community there and, and start services. So, so you,
0: have uh, just said some things, which for a lot of people in the, uh, equine therapy world would seem to be completely dissonant things you said you've, hmm. in this last Couple of minutes. You've said homelessness. You've said but family rituals of joy, safety, and sweetness. You've said autism. You've said Grand Prix dressage. (laughs) How do all these things come together, Jo?
1: Pretty naturally, right? Talk us through it. Well, I think the important thing is 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 joy and curiosity and exploration. Um, The best of dressage is just that. Right. It's partnership and it's, and it's joyfulness. And if it's not joyfulness, you certainly see it and you feel it. Um, and that connection that we seek with the horse when we seek excellence in, in horsemanship is always going to be about, about joy and curiosity and communication and ritual. Right. Horses, they love a good ritual. They love to know what's coming. And um, they loved that predictability. And you certainly learn that in in the autism world. if you can if you can create a joyful place, but that it's so unpredictable, sometimes that's destabilizing. And so bringing it back to beautiful ritual that that feels like home, that feels like safety, um, it all it all fits in
0: now, for many people in the horse world who look at dressage a little bit askance. They equate it with the word stressage. It's never good enough. You know, it's a bit snooty and so on. How does dressage and autism slash special needs slash equine assisted work come together? What's the connection?
1: Well, the first thing that comes to mind is rhythm, right? If we look at the training scale, rhythm, 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 we're, we're born to a rhythm. The music that we listen to is you know is directly connected to heart rates a heart rate of when we feel good a heart rate of when we feel excited um and also our our gait we love rhythm we are creatures of rhythm and and horses as well when they feel good are creatures of rhythm when we're rhythmically moving again we're creating that 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 joy and that predictability you know um you don't have to be a musician to be able to find the one, right? The one is home in rhythm. And uh, I think, you know, what I'm seeing in dressage lately, and even in jumping, is um, people understanding rhythm and understanding biomechanics so much more. They're understanding that when a horse is compressed in his neck and he's compressed in his back, that it is stressage, right? And we feel it and we see it. Um, and, and the rhythm is the first thing that goes out the window. So when, um, gosh, I, I, I can get lost in the woods on this, um, just trying to come back lead us to into the woods. Lead us into the woods. <laughs> no, lead us into
2: the woods. I love it.
1: So, you know, finding, finding that regulating rhythm, it feels good and, and- Why does we, the
0: rhythm feel good? Let me nail you on that one. So. Let's say so we're assuming that we've got a horse that's not stressy, that we've got a horse mm-hmm. that's relaxed, and I'm going to ask you how you achieve this um, in a moment. But um, how does this rhythm beyond a pr- certain predictability
2: um, do good to a human? The other night, my
1: husband and I went out to go see live music for the first time in a long time. Between just the habits that we all built during the the COVID shutdowns and 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 the fear of being in groups, and we saw the Blind Boys of Alabama, um, which are three old men singing spiritual music with a with a with a with a a, a funky backbeat. Um, and it had been so long since I'd seen music with a group, and you realize that. Everybody's breathing and their foot tapping and their head bobbing had all synced up. And you think about any healing tradition, any tribal tradition, it's all based around being in a circle and syncing up in rhythm, generally through song and dance and drumming and whatever that takes. And that's the best of who we are. So why wouldn't we seek that for anybody who's feeling dysregulated? Why wouldn't we go there first?
0: And is that what you're trying to achieve with the horses? And if so, how are you doing it? Um,
1: well, that's, that's the ideal. How are you right? getting
0: the softness? Like what, talk me through it.
1: Well, the softness, there has to be some trust between the horse and the person. And we, we're all now learning how quick horses are to size this up, whether or not we're, we're trustworthy. And so ideally. The person working with the horse, the horse knows well, but that's not always uh, totally possible. And spending a lot of time, whether you want to call it training or working with the horse and seeking that rhythm and and praising for that rhythm.
2: And how are you doing
1: that?
0: Are you doing that from the saddle or are you doing that from the ground?
1: We spend a lot of time on the ground. We spend a lot of time, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but you know, it was it was through you and Ileana that we were introduced to the work of the Valenza family. And they moved us so far forward in the in the 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 in-hand work. It is so much can be accomplished from the ground and and working on the ground will make you a better rider. And there's there's if I could if I could bring one message to the equine group, I'd like that to be known. What you can do on the lunge, what you can do from the ground, and giving the horse that. Visual feedback—they're not as visual as we think they are, but they're they're still quite visual. And when we're on the horse, when we're riding, they don't get that that visual feedback that they're going to get if we have someone on the ground, whether it's lunging or, or doing in hand work.
0: So you um, just—you mentioned the Valencias there. You mentioned in hand, and I was going to get to mentors in a minute. And you 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 talk about sure. your mentors. You so you have talked about Raphael House. Mm-hmm. did you mentioned now the Valencias who? For those people who are listening, the, the Valença family in Portugal, Luis Valencia is probably is regarded, I would say, perhaps I think you'd agree with this, as probably the, the greatest living exponent of classical, i.e. Baroque dressage, probably alive on the planet currently. It seems that there's a, a consensus among among the dressage community about this. And I know him, obviously you do too. And one of the things that comes across is his humanity, but of course, he doesn't really travel outside of Portugal much to teach. So when you say the Valença family, can you talk us through who from that family has been training you and your team? How have they been training you? And how has that made a difference?
1: Mm, Gosh. Uh, So Luis has three daughters. The youngest daughter, Sophia, travels extensively. I think she's in New Zealand as we speak. I think she teaches in at least four and maybe five different languages. I think she can teach in Polish as well, um, which is just amazing. Um, and, uh, and then the, and then her, her traveling partner and co-trainer, uh, Gonzalo Lenusz. Um, the two of them, uh, have been coming out. I think the first time I met them was at your place in Elgin. And I'm so bad at timelines. That was probably what? eight, nine years ago? It was the
0: Pleistocene, I think. I think when Mastodon think so. <laughs> still bellowed <laughs> so. to Mastodon across the primeval True. swamp. I think it was, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. But and you look a very wheel. nice Mastodon to ride. I appreciate it. Yes, so the Mastodons yeah. have yeah. a beautiful
0: sense of rhythm, really.
1: Really, really rhythmic. It's
0: a shame yeah. they're not around
2: anymore. Yeah.
1: It is, it is. So, um, and then uh, I think it was 2018, I was able to go to Portugal and spend a week Um, at the Valences and, and, and we had two days of terrible, terrible, terrible rain and wind storms that were so bad, even in their, their covered school, there was water (laughs) running down the hill and rushing and, and here's, you know, Master Valenzo with a a giant push broom and trying to, to, you know, move the water and it didn't work. And so, you know, in true Portuguese tradition, we all just went back to the house and ate lunch for hours and hours and (laughs) hours and, uh, which they were going to do anyway. But uh, he was gracious enough to let me interview him for about three hours uh, until all of the batteries ran out um, and just spending that intimate time with him. The first question I asked him just as kind of a warm up was, you know, what did you have for breakfast? And he spins it into this philosophical, beautiful treatise on 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 Boshe, um, what a what a joy right? so yeah that mentorship has been uh such a gift
0: what would you say it's done you say in terms of providing rhythm and mm. softness and a well-being through that mm. uh through for the for your the, the people that you serve what would you say mm-hmm. it's done for your horses
2: mm-hmm.
1: well and we haven't even touched on on um joel's particular brand of insanity, um, we're going to believe me because people need to know
0: your particular brand of insanity because they will go WTF and I'll go yuck. So yeah, what let, we'll go to the insanity in a minute. What's it done for
2: this insane crew? Uh, they're sweet, they're sweet, sweet, sweet
1: and soft. Um, and these are horses that generally come in with not just tension, but some gnarly injuries, bone-on-bone injuries, um, muscle imbalances from their 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 field of expertise on what they've been bred for hundreds of years to do. Um, they just get soft. Um,
0: soft in the body, get... soft in the brain. In the, Not like me, soft in the brain, but
2: soft, <laughs> right. you
0: know what I mean? Soft in the yeah. Like. So I'm just digging a hole for myself, but the softness, emotional as well as, yeah, um, okay.
1: absolutely. Okay. Absolutely.
0: Do you have absolutely. any speculation on why that might be? Uh, what's going on with this in hand work that creates this?
1: There's a lot of balancing in the body. There's a lot of finding horses in, in, in a natural setting will not very often, um, cross their legs over the midline um, unless they're particularly scared. Um, But very often we find that when a horse with his hind legs steps underneath his center of gravity with one hind leg and moves and bends in his his body, he starts deepening his breath, he starts to lengthen the outside of his body, he gets softer on the inside, Um, and then when we consistently reward that, he starts to seek it not just for his own self, but he seeks it in in pleasing you and you being part of that herd. Um, I've never, ever seen anything. You know, it used to be that you would just put a horse on the end of a lunge line and run them until they're tired, and then, you know, he'll figure it out, which does work to an extent, and it worked for me for a long time. But to change that into the horse feeling at home in his body and knowing where all his feet are and, 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 and softening through his back before we put a rider on, softening through his jaw before anybody's holding a bit, um, they just get sweet. And that's the word that just keeps coming up.
0: So sweet from insane. Why are these horses coming insane? Where are they coming from, these horses that
2: come to you?
1: They're racehorses, uh, yeah. So they're bred to be fast and there's nothing faster or so you know, a
2: mile the, to five miles. Than a so
0: you are putting mm-hmm. autistic people
2: mm-hmm.
0: on off-the-track thoroughbreds?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Now, some people would say that's dangerous. Some people would say,
2: mm-hmm.
0: oh, you can't do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, you shouldn't do that. How can this work? Why is it working? Because it clearly is working because you've been around for 16 years. You've got another satellite here. Um, I know that you are now um, under the San Mateo County medical and mental health thing, which we're going to go to in a minute. Mm -hmm. So clearly, clearly, clearly you're getting results. How can this be? Why isn't it dangerous? Because all the naysayers are going to say that's not something you should do, you shouldn't match up raw <laughs> <all> thoroughbreds <laughs> like with this <laughs> <wonderful> <laughs>
2: population. So talk us through how it works. One of the things about a thoroughbred is that he is born
1: with humans in his life. Um, some of the Burrow courses are not handled until they're three, four or five years old, a racehorse is, <laughs> he's handled at conception. The rule is you cannot artificially inseminate for a racehorse, it has to be a live cover and it has to be witnessed and certified. So humans are there from that moment of, of conception. Um, and so, and, and the good ones and good farms, um, the people handling of horses are experienced horse people. So a lot of them come quite trusting. Um, I don't think they would run if they didn't trust, um, because we asked them for everything and sometimes it costs them everything. So that's one thing you don't have to teach a thoroughbred to want to please or trust humans. Um, because they, they, they come that way. They've also seen a lot of things at the track, right? Bicycles are not new to them. Big tractors are not new to them. Um, so they do, you know, a four-year-old horse coming off the track has seen a lot of human things.
0: And a lot of different but, locations, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And he's, he's, he's hauled in vans. He's been to sales, um, and, which isn't to say that that isn't traumatic or stressful. Um, but he has been there, done that. And the fact that he's standing in your yard means that he survived it on some level. Um, you know, he's worked with a lot of veterinarians. Hopefully he's had his teeth done and he's had some pretty good nutrition. So, so there's that as as the lead up but he's bred to be really really fast um, he's been written fairly roughly um, and you know he's been he's been taught to lean into contact with the bridle. you know if there's one thing I can say about horses period is their ability to forgive is one of the most soul cleansing and also taxing you know if you think about it so once you start to spend time with the horse and start to get him feeling good in his body they become so appreciative and so gosh I sound like a broken record but they get sweet Um, and um, I also like to illustrate in a way people can can understand you know the the importance of environment and diet for the horses so if a horse is at the track, you know, we we have a joke a racetrack saying that you just feed him beans and gunpowder, you know, and then light a match and off they go. Um, so diet and environment, right? If you bring home a um a border collie puppy and you live in an apartment and you go to work all day, he's probably going to chew up all your shoes and your credit cards and the walls. Um, but if you live on a farm and he goes to work with you all day, and he's moving all the time, and he's with other dogs, people are going to come to your house at dinnertime and say, how come your dog is so well-behaved? He just sleeps over in the corner. He doesn't bother anyone. Um, it's the same with the horses. When you create the right environment and the right diet, um, which helps me and my staff too, because I still like to go fast, right? So it means that the thoroughbreds you have a reason to get them out and go find a good hill and have a proper gallop. And and move around a little bit um, so that they can regulate, um, and that works for me too.
0: So you're saying that um, you're taking off the track thoroughbreds, and through a mixture of this classical in hand work, plus this natural environment, because um, I know I've seen your California hills that you're working on, and giving them speed when they need it, so that they, correct me if I'm wrong, so that they won't need it. When they're working with your vulnerable population, because mm-hmm. they've got their jolly out, basically is that, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, means that you end up with a sensitive and giving horse that feels good in its body. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real beauty in what you're saying in terms of an animal that has been, if not broken, although some of them are, as you say, come with injuries in service now being rehabbed through this work that you do, to then go back into service in a way that provides it itself with well-being. There's a story to this that I'd like to unearth, which I actually myself don't know, even though I've known you for a while. Not everyone knows thoroughbreds, not everyone would be able to do this. Um,
2: let's go back to your earlies. Joelle, what's your first contact with the horse in your life? How did you get into horses?
1: My mother's family were jockeys, some of them very good, some of them really bad. Um, and, but all of them violent drunks. And, uh, so my mother was terrified of me being anywhere near the track and She had a rough life growing up and she wanted to create the perfect suburban upbringing for her family, which she did. Um, but it was always horses for me. And I can remember I was looking at your questions, um, before I, before I dialed up and I can remember being like eight years old at the, at the, at the park pony ride you know where everybody else is three or four years old and I'm eight so I'm bigger than anyone and I'm on this pony on the little track and I am the happiest person on the planet (laughs) I just I can feel it in my body I just it was just bubbles everywhere and I was so happy I just wanted to cry and you know some squeaky little plasticky saddle that I'm sitting on on some poor little pony that's going round and round in circles, and um nothing had ever made me so happy and um and so I just whatever I needed to do to be around horses I did um, which included you know working for lessons or there were there were horses on the way to school in stables, and I remember stuffing sweatpants. Underneath my my Catholic schoolgirl skirt and sneaking into the barn and, and sitting on their backs while they ate before school, and um, till I got discovered and there were nobody caught you calls yet. to the police. Ah. Yeah, well, eventually, eventually they did. But um, you know, just being on them and smelling them and being with them uh, was all I ever wanted. And uh, so, by the time I was eighteen. I was galloping racehorses at the track, much to my mother's chagrin. Um, And that was my life for, uh, I guess, for the next 12 years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: Now, you
0: you said that you were galloping racehorses on the track from AT. Mm -hmm. I know your story. And I think it would really help listeners to know your story. Because I think there's a link here into service and special needs. Something happened to you um, before that 18th birthday. Can you tell us that story?
1: Sure. I was very unexpectedly a mom at 16, and, and
0: this was uh, where, where where in the US did that happen? Uh,
1: in Sacramento, California. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I was an athlete. My son's dad was also an athlete. Um, we were both swimmers. He was into cycling. I was I was running track and cross country. And we were training for triathlons. I somehow thought that that would um, act as birth control.
2: A, I don't know. That sounds like
1: a
0: sixteen-year-old, you know, outlook, yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. So, um, but I was very, very, very lean, um, which probably between that and being sixteen years old and quite stressed contributed to the fact that he Greg was born nine weeks early. So he was a three and a half pound baby, um, with a 50, 50 shot of, of survival.
0: Three and a half uh, pound baby.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And
0: you're a 16 year old man
1: mm-hmm.
0: with, a, with a premature three and a half pound baby.
2: Yeah. 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 What are you looking yeah. at?
0: How are people reacting to this?
1: You know, I didn't have time to notice how anybody was reacting. Cause I was, I was busy praying and visiting and trying to figure out how to breastfeed a baby that's on you know that's being tube fed um he he did marvelously he's is to this day so strong um and pulled through beautifully and came home about a week and a half before his due date
2: joel i've lost you hold on i got you back all right so where i lost you is you've got You're
0: 16, you've got a premature baby who's come home. You're trying to figure out how to breastfeed with a baby that's on a
2: tube. You're trying to figure this out and you're riding racehorses at the track for a living.
1: No, I wasn't. Um, I started galloping racehorses when he was about two and a half. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Because that's what all young mums do is, yeah, when, when their kids hit toddler and they, they, they go and get jobs galloping two year old thoroughbreds, um, which of course is not dangerous or anything. And uh, you took no wrecks, of course, I'm sure.
2: No, no, never fell off. Right. Mm -mm. Um, Mm -hmm. how do you go from this teenage mum surviving by galloping racehorses on the track? Risking your life,
0: eking out a dirt poor wage living, dealing with incredibly rough human beings, and meeting the challenges of being a single mom at a teenage How, how do you put all this together?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I know that's really unsatisfying, but I think I realized that, you know, I was, I was a mom and it was a sacred, um, important duty and that i was his one person who was ultimately responsible for him if i was dead inside i'd have nothing to offer him and i needed something that made me alive inside and that was horses and galloping racehorses is a way you get paid to have horses in your life and you're done by 10 in the morning Um, you know, and so I could go to school, I could have another job, I could be with my son. So, you know, and in a, in a, in a way that's for better or for worse, followed me through my life, trying to cram all these responsibilities in my life. Um, so, you know, I was thinking, how do I stay alive inside? How do I feed a a, a love and a passion in me? And still feed my family and that's what i
2: did
0: so you go from um galloping resources on the track as mm-hmm. a single mom figuring all this out and a certain time later in your life you enter the therapeutic world with neurodiverse people what's the connection there's a connection there what happens in the course of those intervening years that connects you from is that is there something to do with what's going on with your child, what takes you there?
1: My son had a really unique way of learning. School was easy for me. Um, I was always successful in school. Um, I was successful socially. Um, I was a mediocre athlete at whatever I tried. Um, For Greg, it was different. And I realized that it wasn't a lack of intelligence on his part. In fact, far from it, he had this spectacular curiosity to want to know how things worked. And he took things apart and he made terrible messes and he lit things on fire. And he, 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 he just wanted to know and he had to touch it and he had to tear it up and he had to figure it out. And when you are a highly active little boy um in our school system with a very young, distracted mom, you're a problem. You're a problem. That's all there is to it. And he was a problem. And you know, I, I like to say that he hated school. I think school hated him. Mm. And that made me so angry that they just were missing this beautiful intelligence and um at the time uh you know the only resource that i had for learning anything about learning was the public library and so here i am at you know now all of 20 21 22 years old with a with a with a child in elementary school who's already failing um and you discover john holt and unschooling. And you start thinking, wait a minute, you mean brains aren't designed to sit still in a classroom and be shouted at for the next 13 years? Um, you know, and John Holt was a nut, but God, he was a, he was a brilliant nut. And then you start looking at Waldorf education, which, you know, how is a Gallup girl, um, going to afford a private Waldorf education? here's these people talking about taking children out into gardens and growing their own food. And, 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 and I start thinking, no, this is how he learns. He learns hands on and he learns by experiencing things. And as I'm learning this and as I'm watching him, he's failing and he's failing and he's being labeled a problem and his behaviors are, you know, I, how do you take a beautiful eight-year-old and have a depressed, angry child and I got angry and I got protective and I didn't get angry or protected enough because I kept being told he just needs to sit down and shut up and do it. Um, and, and I just kept getting more curious. He taught me so much about learning and so often I would just have to pull him completely out of school because it was just torturous for everyone. And so here I am working, you know, two and three jobs at the time, still working at the racetrack. And, um, and I got to homeschool him on top of it. And then I just, I had to rely on other people to, you know, I had to build a village for him in how to learn. And the village that came together was not the one that I expected or even wanted. Uh, at the racetrack, the, they're all union jobs and the security guards are union cops. Most of them semi-retired, a lot of them wounded San Francisco and Oakland beat cops. Um, I don't like it, but to this day my son loves weapons. And he learned how to respect a weapon. He learned how to care for a weapon, he learned how to handle a weapon from these cops at the racetrack. And they were so good to him. And the and the corporation yard, the guys who built things, you know, they were kind to him. Um the guys in the video department, because I worked in the video department at night, showed him how to wire things up. Um, it was all hands-on, and that's where he would thrive, and that's where he would shine, and that's where he would be successful. and uh, And he's so a mechanic today. You,
0: you know, learned. In a so you learned how to create community, learning, teaching community. I, you said you had to homeschool, and you immediately, rather modestly, leapt towards what other people. Uh, were teaching your son. What did you learn? How did you learn to teach? Tell us a couple of stories from that. How, how did he teach you How to mm-hmm. a child like him?
1: Yeah, so I remember, you know, here I, I was working at least two jobs. I was galloping racehorses in the morning and I was working for the racetrack in the afternoon. So Mondays and Tuesdays were our days for school and we had to, we had to log X amount of hours of schoolwork and turn that into the school district. And that's how I was able to, so, so we, we would collectively game the system. So we would go to downtown Berkeley and we would go and watch a foreign film and eat popcorn. And so we would log two hours of reading because we had to read the subtitles, two hours of foreign language and two hours of history. We're six hours in and we've had popcorn. You know, <laughs> um, but it was really out in movement and, you know, playing in the water and building dams and climbing trees and reading books that he wanted to hear about. And that was humor. He loved I think the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy changed his life. You know, suddenly, reading wasn't a chore, and it wasn't awful. It was funny
0: and where and did you do this reading?
1: As often as we could, outside, up in trees, you know, at the beach. Do you climb we into the go. trees
0: with him and read?
1: Of course. I still climb trees. I love You say,
0: of course. I can tell you, Joelle, <laughs> your average teacher, let alone mom, does not climb into trees.
2: <laughs> well, they're missing um, something.
0: What made you able to follow your child like that?
1: It was probably de- desperation. Nothing else worked. You know, if, 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 if shouting at him to sit down and shut up and just do the homework worked, maybe that's where our lives would have been. But, you know, the universe had other plans and, um, nothing else worked. The only time he was happy and there's a, there's an all hands on science museum in San Francisco. Uh, well, now there's several, you know, it's, this was right. This was 25 years ago, 28 years ago. And taking him there and just letting him run loose and touch everything and experience things. And, and then I remember one time we went to the, the aquarium in San Francisco. This was the old one. And so here it is, you know, he's homeschooling and, um, and we're in the aquarium and we're down below and there's, there's penguins, you know, in the, in the tank and. Greg is running back and forth and the penguins are swimming with him and following him back and forth. And He's having the best time. And we look over and there's a group of school kids with the teacher, you know, who's making them go through and do everything in this very quiet sort of organized way. And every kid was so desperately jealous (laughs) of this little (laughs) boy who can run with the penguins and having the time of his life. And suddenly he looked up and he went, I'm the lucky one. You know, nobody's telling me. And uh, the penguins were having a great time. I was having a great time. Greg was having a great time. That's how you learn to follow the child. You know, you have those little moments where you go, oh, this is actually learning.
0: So you're saying Greg, to this day, he's doing great. He's a mechanic. He's, he's a horseshoer. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: mm-hmm. Did he become a horseman with you? He... Horses were part of his life, his whole life.
1: Um, you know, his first babysitters were horses, right? Big thoroughbreds. And, but school was continued to be torturous and, and awful for him. And so he was in his senior year of high school and, and he just, he just wasn't going to go. He knew he wasn't going to graduate. He hated school and they call this now school refusal, which there wasn't a term then. A dear friend of mine, uh, who had a program in Maui saw us really struggling and fighting and fussing. And, and, and Greg had really fallen in with a, with a bad bunch of kids who had some pretty dangerous lifestyle habits. Um, and so she just intervened and she said, uh, Greg, why don't you come to Maui and work for me? And he was he was only 17 at the time. And uh and we decided that that we would, you know, this was a friend that I loved and trusted, and she was she was willing. And so he did. And he went to Maui and he was working on a horse farm. And uh her stepson is on the spectrum and they live together. And um and he he was famous for really violent meltdowns and that was part of J- greg's job was to keep ryan from hurting himself or others and um and it was a, a hard job and 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 the job fell apart uh, so now here's my not quite 18 year old son living out of his car in maui <laughs> and uh,
2: every month, yeah yeah
1: yeah uh, you're right right uh and another friend in Maui called, and uh, and she said, "Is is Greg still looking for work?" I said, "He is." And she said, "I I really need someone to work for me at at my farm." And so I called him because every homeless person in Maui has a cell phone. And uh, and I said, "You know, look, uh, Jillian needs someone to work for her at PU Holo Stables." And he's like, "God, Mom, I'm so sick and tired of horses. I've been scooping horse manure my whole life, blah, blah. And I said, look, I I understand it's not a career move, but it's a roof over your head and it's a hot meal tonight. So just just give it a go. So he agreed and he called her and he went to work for her. And I don't think it was a week later. She was an avid polo player. And the Maui Polo Club, I think, is the oldest continually operating polo club in the United States. It's a it's a big scene. So she goes out into the um, first game of the season, and um, somebody rides by her the opposite direction, catches her stirrup, and turns her leg completely around the other direction. A really, really violent break. And she was laying in the hospital, and she says to Greg, "Um, I need you to run everything. I need you to um, run all the lessons, take care of the horses, and there's no money. Um, but what I do have is I have a string of horses, I have a rig, and I have a membership to the Maui Polo Club. So you can have my membership for the year if you'll do it all. From homeless
2: to member of the Maui. From
1: homeless to, to member with a full string. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a Maui story. Um, and the the local pro saw a lot of talent. Um, you know, because Greg knew horses very, very, very well from the ground and wasn't afraid of hot horses because he'd been around race horses his whole life and took him under his wing and, and privately tutored him. And, uh, uh, within a year, I think Greg was rated, um, one goal outdoor and two goals indoor, which is unheard of. And, and it really changed his life. And so the fact that horses would be a turning point in his life where he wanted to be healthy and he wanted to be engaged in life, um, was a dream come true for me. He came back to the States and, uh, started working for us, um, adopted a horse off the track, whom you know, who would go through a forest fire for Greg, got involved with a girl who was working for us, who
2: is now a quite accomplished trainer in her own right. And that brings us to today. So you
0: follow, you're a 16 year old girl, you get pregnant, you end up with a somewhat special needs son. You, at least in terms of what would people now would probably call ADD, ADHD, and mm-hmm. positional defiant, and so on and so on. So neurodiverse, you're galloping resources at the track. You find a way by following your child, reading books in trees, going into nature, moving and finding community for him um, to the point where he, can find a way for, for horses to bring him from homeless to a two-goal polo player. You then said he came back and started working for us and adopted a thoroughbred off the track. Somewhere in there, you went from single mum galloping racehorses on the track to having a program, taking off the track thoroughbreds and using them therapeutically. Fill that gap. What happened?
1: Um, I think just pretty naturally, when you gallop horses at the track, you start to wonder what happens to them afterwards. Um, and then you start placing them, um, which is a great excuse to do a little competing. But then you, you have these horses that, you know, they're not a 16 one hand gray gelding, um, you know, with a, with a nice balanced body that is going to, very easily find a a a show home you know what do you do with a with a one-eyed horse with a big ankle um who's a fantastic horse who gave you everything on the track how do you help that horse um because that's going to be a hard horse to to place and then i just started thinking about the car bank debt that we owe horses as a rule you know everything that a horse has done for humanity, but in particular racehorses because they so willingly give you everything um, and they do get hurt and they do break down. I started, collecting is the wrong word, but there were a few horses that I knew were going to be really, really, really tricky to place. And um, so what can those horses do? And um, then you realize that you you've got to have a lot of skill with um with with keeping them comfortable in their bodies and a lot of skill with with training them so that they're quiet enough in their bodies to maybe be a lower level schoolmaster um or be a good trail horse um so it really started with the square peg horses right the horses that were going to have a hard time fitting in um but I had an experience I, I I started to garner and I think probably just from my experience with with realizing that people learn a whole lot differently than we were taught to teach. Um so I'd gotten a reputation in in running a writing school for for working with kids that were gonna be a little more difficult to teach. And um, you know, a friend of mine told me one time, it takes no talent to teach talent. And I thought, well, that's an interesting, that's that's an interesting challenge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's certainly true, right? Mm -hmm. If we think about it and, you know, we, we so often want to compete for those clients who are talented, you know, and, and those clients don't stick around, right? Because they get recruited by every other trainer. And I thought, I don't want to do this. I really want to invest in, in students that I want to spend time with and with horses that i want to spend time with i didn't want to be in a business where i was just turning horses over constantly and turning clients over i wanted people that um you know if they wanted to launch into a different discipline that i didn't specialize in that would be great but it would be it would be a natural movement rather than this this kind of ugly dog eat dog sort of world that i saw in the horse business and uh so I got a reputation as a, as a, as a, as an instructor who, who had, and I'm putting air quotes around a lot of patience. Cause I don't, I don't know how anybody can be successful in the horse world unless you have some degree of patience. And, uh, so this family brought this little girl, uh, out for riding lessons and she was just, she's just a cute little red haired, freckle faced little girl. And she was very shy. And then the parents came to me and said, well, um, she has autism. And I said, well, what, what does that mean? And they said, it, 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 it means nothing. Just treat her like any other child. I said, well, okay. And she was shy and, and we could work around that. And she certainly seemed like she liked the horses, even if she was afraid of them. And uh, so I had thrown her into a few group lessons. And we were out one day a day I'll never forget. And uh, we're in the ring and, and it's just one of those windy, shitty days. And, um, the horses are distracted. My voice isn't carrying. So I'm shouting really loud to be heard. And, um, and the barn crew decides that they've had it with this crappy weather and they're going to feed the horses early and go home. So now I'm teaching a group lesson, and all the horses in the arena can hear is the horses in the barn being fed. So now they're super distracted. So every time this little girl goes by the gate, of course, the horse just hangs a hard right-hand turn to the, to the, to the gate. So I do what every riding instructor since the dawn of time says to do, and I shout at her to hold her left rein. And the horse ducks to the gate. So we go around again and of course the horse ducks to the gate. So I did what I was supposed to do, I thought, and that is shout more loudly to hold the left rein. Um so this goes on and it's just getting awful. And I'm doing my best. I'm shouting so loud that obviously anybody could understand, all you have to do is hold the damn left rein. So I go marching over
0: languages in schools too, right? It's
1: true, it's true, Yeah. yeah. Shout louder. Yeah. Shout louder and uh which i was doing you know with alacrity i was i was really holding my line and um so i ran over and i grabbed the horse's rein and i made a face at this beautiful little girl and i and i looked up at her and i said all you have to do is hold the left rein and she leans over and she gets almost nose to nose with me and she just whispers
2: i'm trying And (sighs) I moved. Yeah. 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 And the whole I felt the ground underneath me just
1: move and shake.
2: Yeah.
1: Everything changed in that moment. Yeah. Everything changed. And I think that was a moment my life changed and I realized this is the service I need to do. I need to recognize when someone's trying. I need to honor
2: the student way more than I was. And I needed to change the way I thought about everything. Yeah. Now, Joelle, hats off because not every riding instructor would have listened. Mm. What made you listen? I don't know. But it was so
1: profound. It was such a physical experience. Um, and I realized that I'm not teaching any... I, I don't believe, and I've thought about this a lot since then, I don't believe that anyone has ever taught anyone anything. I think we learn when we decide to learn. And if you wear the mantle of teacher, you have to honor that every day. That all you can do is present information the best you can. And the learning is 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 up to the learner, not the teacher. And I think it's the same with horses too. You know, I mean, how many how many ways to the PF are there? There's so many ways and every horse is going to show you their way. And you can't teach the Piaf. You have to search and look for it and see what happens. And then you can help develop it, but you're not teaching.
2: What happened to that little girl?
1: That family, I was associated um, with some families that were close to that family. I think at that time, and you can speak to this certainly better than I can, at that time, there was very much a very big school of um, what I call the get over it school of autism therapy.
0: I do remember that school and it's yeah. still out there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. And, and that family w- was quite dedicated
2: to that school. Yeah. yeah.
0: Did you manage
2: after that moment where she communicated to you that she needed compassion? And joy, before she was taken away to a world of less
0: joy. Would you say that you managed to switch your approach with her?
1: Yeah. And yeah. how?
0: How did you do it? What did you do? What did you change?
1: Well, the first thing I did is I told, uh, I told the parents that I, I only wanted to work one on one. And then we went to the round pen, you know, where where we could. We could, you know, Skinner would call it sterilizing the environment, right? Where you had less distractions and you had less things that she needed to do. She didn't need to necessarily steer. She could just start, you know, feeling the horse going forward and we could, we could add one element at a time. Um, and, uh and then I just decided that it had to be more fun. It just had to be more fun. You know, nobody ever changed the world because they knew what diagonal to post on like it's it's never actually made the world any better um uh, uh but you know that was that was early on but it how was did, how it was did, definitely before was we go because
0: it's a really interesting point because the, the, the listeners don't know where you've gotten to now we will get there because it's worth hanging with this anyone who's listening because joelle's program is for sure uh I'd say it's probably one that it's in the top 10 in the world um, in terms of its effectiveness with neurodiverse people. Um, and we'll go into why that is. So how did you make it more fun? How did you make it more joyful? What did you do? What did you change?
1: I changed me, right? I changed the focus or the intention that who cares about this academic world of riding a horse? Let's let's just enjoy it. What do you like about the horse? Which horse do you like? What is he, you know, is he funny? Is he sweet? Or when you're scared, you know, what does he do that's scary? So it was, it was an invitation to having conversations about not just what the horse was, but who the horse was. So personalizing the horse, I think was, was something that came pretty naturally to me. But you know, when you, when you find yourself running a, a riding school, you know, the numbers add up and if you can get six horses, six kids and horses in a lesson, you know, you can make a living, but making it way more personal. Um, and then, and, and, and then, and then fun, you know, do you think the horse is having fun? Well, what could the horse do that's having fun? Um, and that started to change everything and it just gave me so much freedom to do something way more interesting than some type of an academic riding school. You know, which then I later learned came out of a military tradition. That's how I came up. You know, I was shouted at and screamed at and told how awful I was. Yeah, I did my time there and, and just, um, and, and I'm grateful actually to those teachers because, because it helped me understand what I didn't want in a writing school. And in those moments where I'm shouting to hold the left rein, thinking, well, this is, this is no good. This isn't what I want.
0: So before we move on from where this girl changed you to where you are now, um, which is a, an impressive uh, climb, does a memory stand out from this girl before she left your life, where it did become fun, where it, where it, where it became healing?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was um because i'd been quite a bit more successful with this with this girl autism families just started coming in um and some of whom are still in my life and that was 20 some odd years ago uh yeah uh and so it became one of the few places that she could go where she felt successful and that that was healing for her, it was healing for me, you know, any teacher who hears that and who doesn't get really turned on by that and say, wow, somebody who, somebody really wants to be here. This is the place they'd rather be than anywhere else.
2: And this girl learned how to operate your off-the-track thoroughbreds. Mm That's not too shabby yeah yeah
0: now, this is you running a small survival riding school. Suddenly, you're getting overwhelmed with people with
2: children with autism, because mm-hmm. you did well with this autistic girl mm-hmm. um I know that you uh
0: have several methods that you use. I know that you use horseboy method. I know that you use movement method. I know that you train horses in hand with the Valencia's old classical Baroque. What are your go-to methods and what are not your go-to methods? Basically what is square peg?
1: Yeah. You know, method is such a tricky word, right? Because it seems restrictive. I like to think of it, and I think you and I have had long conversations about this, that the thing that really excited me about horse boy was that it was a framework i felt like it gave me a set of principles that i could hang flesh and muscles and clothes and jewelry off of um and that's what i liked because you know i'm just not good at methods i'm not because every horse you know if 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 you don't like unpredictability probably shouldn't be in the horse business you know but for people with short attention spans like us um it works really well right we're dilettantes we we want to be adaptive we want to to roll with what's happening today um and and when you've got rigidity right that's going to break um and so having the flexibility of a framework which one of those big portions of the framework like the 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 encompassing bit is joy you know certainly Self-advocacy is our north star, but what propels that is is joy and fun. And if it's not fun, um, there's a million other things and therapies and activities that most of our families are participating in that aren't based in fun. Yeah. Um, and and we know the brain science now that it pays off. It pays off. And like I said, if sitting around and shouting at people worked better, maybe I'd do it but all things being equal let's have fun and so there's a lot of silliness around here there's a lot of creativity and self-expression there's a lot of costuming and dressing up around here there's a lot of music you know um and it's so great to you know the technology that we have now with bluetooth speakers that we can put on a on a on a saddle and clip to it uh and if you can't do that you know um We've got a horse that plays the ukulele. I don't know. Have you seen those videos? Uh, yeah. I
0: have not seen those videos. Oh, I think I would okay. like to see those videos. Yes. Yeah.
1: You should see those I think videos.
0: Listeners would, would, would probably like to see those videos. Your horse is playing. Yeah. Ukulele.
1: Anyone?
0: Yeah. All in favor say aye. Yeah. That's a resounding aye. Okay. <laughs> he's the, he's got me. chops.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 He's got chops. Um, and so, you know, and then we start giggling around with whether or not we should, you know, we've got horses that love to pick things up and shake them. So we, we're, we've got to start a band. Um, so we,
2: yeah. <laughs> but you say that you, uh,
0: don't like methods, but you also said, you know, the neuroscience to it now. Yeah. Yeah. Um And I also see you diligently following the old master's system of training horses with the lunge, with the in-hand work, and then the assisted in-hand work in the manner of the old masters, which clearly is getting great results with these horses, both from the horse's point of view and from the kid's point of view. So there seems to be, to me, an interesting mix there of freedom and free expression, mixed with hard science, mixed with humbling yourself to uh, an ancient tradition that works and somehow in the midst of all those three apparently contradictory things the square peg delivers up what
1: sweetness i know it, but it's it's what it yeah. comes down to it's sweetness um the horse feels good the people are feeling good the parents you know a, a, as a parent there's nothing sweeter than the sound of your child laughing and enjoying themselves.
2: And what is the Um, child learning? What are they learning while they're in this sweet state? Give me some examples. Well,
1: we want to focus on what they want to learn. And a lot of it is self-expression. A lot of it is self-expression. And I think, you know, what we hear, if you give the child the opportunity to share their interests, they're reinforcing things that they're struggling to learn we had uh, uh during covid uh and we've got a little video somewhere we had we had one girl dress herself up as a, a bottle of hand sanitizer <laughs>
2: and
1: then, and then uh, uh, uh and then she painted the coronavirus molecule on um on a horse and then she uh bathed him right and so that was her way of washing away the coronavirus and being part of the cure and no longer, you know, part of being scared. Um, it's pretty out of the box, pretty weird, right up there with a the horse playing ukulele.
2: Okay, so
0: um, I let's say I bring my child to you <laughs> and I say, um, okay, it's clear that you can get communication going. I have a child that doesn't want to communicate. Now I want to take it further. I'd like mm-hmm. my child to get comfortable with maths. They don't seem to have mm-hmm. that. What's your approach to that? What, what are you doing?
1: Well, I mean, first we have to figure out what the math level of the of the learner is, um, and also remember, music is math, right? Right. We can we? We've got we've got we've got eight counts, and you can factor that into you know four sets of two. Two sets of four, eight ones, one eight, you know, and infinite, uh, and unending numbers of zeros and, and playing, playing with the rhythm of the horse and, and music. That's one easy one. That's one of my favorite ones. And also reminding, um, reminding parents that listening to music is math, enjoying music is math, dance is math. Um, I think, do you remember, um, we were in thailand and there was a there was a boy playing guitar and his mother was so upset and he was he was a he was self-taught from youtube videos and his mother was incensed that he wasn't learning math you know and helping him understand oh my gosh you know this is all math was 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 helpful for her so um so at some point yes there is the performative academics that you do to make a family feel happier um but the stealthy academics are way more challenging and way more fun and um and i would say when i when it comes to math and math concepts um either either music or or the actual physics you know jumping off into the stream and building dams and re-diverting water and thinking about how much pressure it's going to take to make the water flow down the hill. Um,
0: so you will uh, get the child off the horse doing things like this, sure. showing them the physics, then yeah. rebounding them, sure. having them uh, work yeah. the rhythm of the horse, counting them, putting the numbers yeah. together. Then they're with math, both on the horse, both off the horse in that natural environment. It's, it's,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Would that be a typical...
1: Very typical. I, yeah, very I, typical. I,
0: I think I would maybe want to send my child to that. Um, um, for, 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 a lot for... of
1: reading books on horses too, you know, okay. and, and talking about books that we're reading, you know, normalizing the fact that people read and enjoy books mm. can be very educational. You know, when a book is otherwise just this tor- torturous thing that people make you do, instead, all of a sudden you're around a bunch of people and they're all excited to talk about books. Well, guess what? That child wants to read a book so he can bring it back next week and participate in that conversation.
0: You talked about getting the kid off the horse. Would you say that that is as important when you're doing equine assisted stuff, as the work with the horse?
2: Yeah.
1: Anytime you get attached to how much time or what percentage of the time the person spends on the horse, um, you've already, you've already lost. Not that it's not that it's a, a zero sum game, but, um, you know, because then you're, you're forcing someone on a horse and, you know, even the, the square peg name is about not forcing a fit, right? Because if you, if you force a square peg into a round hole, you're, you're forcing that fit and you're creating, and then you're not only creating resistance, but you're destroying the peg and possibly the hole.
0: So I'm Which a child. A I get mm-hmm. uh, brought to your place. Parents mm-hmm. say, I want to try the equine therapy thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's clear. <laughs> i have want nothing to do with the horse
2: Mm. what are you going to do
1: we are are going to um, make sure that we have a a volunteer um, who is close enough with the horse but then the instructor the employee is going to figure out what what you like what you're interested in and we're going to be really 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 sensitive to how close we can bring and involve the horse in that activity. And that may take weeks. Um, and then somebody else is going to be talking to the parent and explaining to them what's going on so that they feel involved in it and they don't feel like they're wasting their time Or helping that parent just go for a walk and, and spend some time alone or go with a friend to the coffee shop.
0: So, um, so you will find, you will find out the child's interests, follow those interests, whether they're horse or not, mm-hmm, have the of horses available mm-hmm, to let mm-hmm. the child grow into.
1: Yeah. And the, naturally find either funny or, or very natural ways to involve the horse in the conversation. Um, and a lot of times, and I think the, the rescue aspect of the horses plays into that because You'll find a softness and a and a, and a and a care that most people will have for an animal um and this this horse needs help and you know he's a recovering ukulele addict and um <laughs> so it can be silly it can be ridiculous um,
2: but laughter's a beautiful way to to impel learning when um the client, let's say, because they could be a child, they could be a young adult, Mm
0: -hmm. um, reaches a certain level of engagement with the horse. You've built this relationship. Do you involve them as trainers?
1: Absolutely.
0: Tell me how you do that.
1: Well, it's empowering, right? I'm not just using this horse as a beast of burden. I'm helping this horse feel better in his body. I'm helping this horse learn new things Um, we also, we do a lot of trick training around here and liberty too, which can be really, really, really empowering for somebody who's constantly being told what to do to be put in the position to get 1100 pounds of X racehorse to do something silly, like step up on a pedestal or bow or smile or lay down. Um, we've got one who loves to lay down now. And so we can get people to sit on him and then get back up. And it's a really thrilling, big feeling. Um, so you know, also taking what the horse's natural interest is too again, this was a horse that, when he was frustrated, would throw himself on the ground. That's a problem in training him for what we're doing, but we turned it into something sweet and uh and now he'll lay down on cue and you can get on him, and he'll stand back up um so again, you know, this just suits my own a d d dilettante type brain. Um, to try and just roll with whatever, whatever is being presented.
0: Do you find that a lot of your clients actually make quite good horse trainers?
2: Mm, I do, I do, I do. Why do you um, think that is? You know, one of the part of autism
1: is a brutal honesty, right? Mm. And horses love honesty, and they love consistency. They're so much happier with that than um, than with other people who have you know fuzzy weird rules that change all the time you know somebody who's who's very clear um and no you don't get the treat or whatever until you do x and holds boundaries um is refreshing to a horse and also just just the joy um you know it feels good when the horse does these groovy, fun things and And we can play around and say, look, you know, this is a bullfighting move and this is how a bullfighting horse feels. And now you feel him dancing. Um, and, and then you'll find that, that, you know, the, the people that we serve start asking for it. Well, he feels a little sticky today. Can we do the bullfighting stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, nobody wants to kick a horse around in circles and we all have horses that some days just don't want to do it. So when he gets in that flowy, feel, feels good.
2: Yeah.
1: Feels good. Yeah, there's no joy in just brutalizing horse in the ribcage.
2: Given that the horse world can be a pretty rough world, um, obviously the racetrack,
0: obviously the sport world, but also, you know, the riding teacher world, as you say, it comes from the military, so it's shouting at people and so on, um, unless they go through an evolution like yours. Um, within the therapy world and the equine assisted, well, what would you, what changes would you like to see? What would you like to see more of?
1: Have you seen the study that just came out this week out of Cornell about, um, uh, they've put EEG, um, little helmets on horses?
0: No, I have not. Tell me about it. Oh,
1: will. it's, um, I made some notes here. I'll just read you these two sentences because, cause they're significant. In answering the question, so it says horses and stables showed an average of two and a half times more right hemisphere gamma waves than those living in open fields with other horses. In people, such waves are often a sign of anxiety, distraction, and depression. The horses that spent most of their time out in the open fields showed twice as many left hemisphere theta waves on average, which is generally a sign of calm and attentive mind. I think paying attention to the environment and the social needs that our horses have um, before delving into to doing making sure that the horse's social and exercise needs are attended to before expecting them to participate in a healing modality is what I'd like to see more of in the equine therapy world.
0: I guess that's logical if the if the horse is supposed to. Uh... Transfer well-being.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, if the horse is not in well-being, yeah, how are they going to do that?
2: Well, and you know, you
1: introduced me to um, uh, Nina at Colm Fry, who's been doing so much of the studies on the permission-based horsemanship in the in the equine guided field. And um, you know, at the time when she started that, she I think she took a lot of heat. And it's nice to see. Um, People recognizing that if, you, if, you, if you're not attending to the horse's social and physical needs, um, it's just plain dangerous to ask him to, to interact with, with people who need healing.
0: Mm, I agree. You know, we were talking about brain science earlier, too, for, for those um, listeners who don't know. When a horse goes in soft collection and it rocks the rider's hips, it fills the rider with a uh, feel good hormone called oxytocin, which also happens to be the communication hormone. So if you have someone who's in a high level of anxiety, you're filling them with a the feel-good hormone and a hormone that wants them to, makes them want to communicate. And then when they move and problem-solve, which is the balancing, um, a protein is produced in the brain called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which over time, working with neuroscientists, we've, we've obviously found out, you know,
2: it can be transferred for neuroplasticity um, in people. Do you find that
0: this same process works for the horse? Do you feel that the horse is getting oxytocin as well when you're working him in the, this way? Do you feel the horse is getting BDNF as well? And if so, uh, how is that? How is that uh, making life better, both for that horse and for whatever
2: client is interacting with that horse? The studies aren't that far along with the horses, but
1: it would certainly seem that uh, that the horses are
2: regulated. Uh, you know, what do we look for in a horse if we're if we're judging in a hunter course, right?
1: We're looking for this horse that's soft over his back, that where his, his neck and his shoulders meet, he, he doesn't have a lot of tension, that his legs swing evenly, um, that he, he has a soft gaze, that his ears are even and pointed forward. All of those things indicate, you know, a horse that, that is, is regulated and whether or not, um, that translates as, as oxytocin. We don't know yet, but we certainly see on the outside of the horse, a horse that is regulated and feeling good. Um, we can translate that into our own bodies and we certainly feel it. You know, any rider, any rider knows the difference between a horse that is stressed and uneven as opposed to a horse that's, that's, you know, even just going down the trail, right? That, that head bobbing, swinging, let's go somewhere curiosity as opposed to the, Jesus Christ, we got to go back to the barn. This is awful. You know? Um, yeah, you don't, you don't have to be a horseman to feel that you just have to be, have a heartbeat.
0: What about, what about neuroplasticity, um, brain change, positive brain mm-hmm.
1: change? What, positive brain change.
0: Would yeah. you, would you see, you see, would you say you see this in the horse? And
1: Absolutely. If- and, and again, you know, you, what i've seen with the in-hand work when when it's done skillfully um is is that the uptake of information is so quick uh, we're having horses learn faster now that we're 5 or 6 years into using the valenza method than i've ever ever imagined um you know the 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 group we have between the two farms we have 26 horses right now never ever had as good a group of horses as we have right now and these are you know these are five six seven eight nine year old thoroughbreds and you know really grouchy 21 year old thoroughbreds too with a lot of injuries um and they're they're coming up and learning faster and faster and faster It it's just it 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 blows me away so you know so the proof is in the pudding at the end of the day um, and so it, 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 you can draw a pretty straight line in between doing good in hand and lunging work and a horse, a horse's learning curve and neuroplasticity and being able to tolerate, um, more stressful situations before, you know, before just having a refusal or whatever that is. It's what, it's what I see. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm pretty confident that the science will play out. And so it's really nice that they're, you know, again, that's why I loved this study from, from Cornell is that they're, they're finally, um, they're measuring brain waves on, on horses that are regulated. And it, you know, uh, we all know that an anxious, distracted and depressed mind doesn't pick up or retain information that well. And there used to be an old cowboy saying that says, you know, you can, you can whoop a horse into understanding, but you're going to have to do it again tomorrow right and yeah. um that's a very rough way of saying it um but you know but but i came from that rough school of of horsemanship and we did yeah. and you had cool. to do it over and over and over and Real. over again until there was and an now, accident yeah until there was an accident yeah or until the horse just gave up yeah, yeah. um uh, and we thought that uh, was training we thought that was training well we were told you know?
0: to do it yeah we, 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 we were, were told to do that it that hard school yeah we
1: were told to do it yeah
0: but if, i think yeah. we all observed that it. Didn't really work. Didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> if it did, we wouldn't be looking for other things. But you mentioned Valenza method. I mm. I will put a, for those of you who are listening, who listen to that, I'll put a, a web link at the end of this for that, that for the Valenza family and the, this classical work that they do in hand. Um, I'll make sure that that's there in the links at the end of this. Um, so we've gone from your backyard off-the-track thoroughbred thing to now, here you are, you are receiving regular grants from the Off-the-Track Thoroughbred Association. You are receiving awards from them. You are a registered health provider now with San Mateo County. Is that correct? Uh, talk to me about about that for mental health. How has that mm-hmm. played out?
1: So San Mateo County Mental Health has engaged us with a contract to provide Um, equine assisted mental health services uh, for the county so what we did was we did a series of retreats for the mental health providers where we actually brought them out for a full day long sensory based day of helping them build resilience skills and at the end of the day um, we did what what in horse boy work we called sensory work which was putting them on the horses body to body in different positions that, of course, the children have shown us and getting them a feeling of being supported and up on the horses in these, in these very vulnerable positions. And for a lot of people, a significant amount, it's a really emotional experience. And people who have been around horses our whole lives and grew up around horses, um, it doesn't feel that special to us because that's how we spent time on our ponies you know laying backwards on our pony out in the field and if we rolled off you know you rolled into the grass and you giggled and you laughed and you dropped your book or um you know we would sit two or three on a horse and you know somebody's up on his neck and somebody's uh, but for people who aren't around horses this is this is life-changing mm-hmm. uh, and so to give them that experience and then we we set it up with the therapist where they have the opportunity to either come with their client or whether they send the client here and we're supporting the, the therapeutic goals for that person. And we ended up doing a lot of intense services for a youth program that's kind of a quasi, um, it's kind of the space between foster placement and juvenile detention facility. These are kids that kind of are in that space in between and it's a residential program and uh and we're seeing those kids come out uh, two and three times a week and they're now volunteering with us too and they have been really 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 good in working with our autism families Um, so it's been a really nice integration we're also working on piloting a program or the San Mateo County Department of Education to do resilience workshops, including the somatic stuff, um, for, for teachers experiencing burnout. So pretty exciting stuff.
0: So this is mental health beyond autism and this Mm -hmm. mental health of mental health care providers in a weird way, like in hand work for the horse in hand in brain work for the, for the, for the, for the carers, um, You, how do you deal with burnout, Joel? I mean, you were a, a stressed out single mom. You were a teenage stressed out single mom, galloping racehorses on the track, risking your life. You had to start a whole organization from scratch. You have built it now to one of the biggest, um, you know, equine, uh, facilities in, in, certainly in California. And you're right there in Silicon Valley. You've got two locations now, um, I know that there's another rather cool location coming up, which I hope you'll tell us. Right. How, I've seen you. I, I, I know the intensity of this work and everything that goes into it, the horse training, not to mention the fundraising, not to mention the money. Blah, blah, blah. How do you yourself deal with burnout? What's your, what's your advice for the people in this field, Ray Burnout?
2: I think
1: doing something creative outside of of whether it's you know horses still turn me on i'm so lucky that way but you know i have times where i need a break and but uh but writing even journaling is a creative endeavor that that helps cooking i love cooking it's a creative challenge and i've gotten quite into cold water sea swimming here which i really really really
2: really enjoy um but I'm so lucky to do what I love doing and, and I have a pretty strong meditation practice too. Talk to me about the creative writing. Well, I finally finished a
1: novel. I've got, um, I've got a, a screenplay sketched out that just needs all of the bells and whistles hung on it. And that's a, that's a, that's a a creative form that I never expected that I was going to, and it, and it just came. So it's kind of fun. And if it turns into nothing, who cares? I'm, I'm enjoying the process. And, and I'm working on a, on a book that is the square peg story that Trafalgar Square has given me a handshake deal for that said that they would love first option on that. And, and I'm about 60,000 words in. So I've got a, pretty good go at a first draft yeah
0: i don't know where you find the time um tell us about the novel what's it about can we buy it can we read it sure
1: sure you can buy it as a uh, kindle at a damn fine hand.com
0: is that the name of the book uh,
1: that is the name of the book a damn fine yeah.
0: hand a what's damn it about that's great nice. it's, it's a, it,
1: it is a fun what's The
0: story about? what's it about
1: the story is uh it is it's a, a fictional telling of, uh, it's, it's really, it's the girl and horse story, right? It's, which has been told over and over again, but, um, it started as a short story where I was really fascinated by thinking about black beauty as a story. Black beauty was the first time anybody told a story from the animal's point of view and black beauty launched the movement that created the, the SPCA. Mm. So a story really can change the world and that story did. And I thought just as a creative exercise, I wanted to see what would happen if I got in the mind of a horse and took him through the journey of going from the racetrack to the slaughter pipeline. Mm. And um, what a lot of people don't understand is uh, I I very much appreciate the, the, the efforts of the Humane Society, but what Humane Society did about 10 years ago was that they outlawed slaughter in the United States, which sounds like a a real win. What it did was that it forced the slaughter to go across the border to Mexico and Canada, and the transport of animals across those borders is unregulated, and the slaughterhouses are unregulated, and it unfortunately created a pipeline of suffering that is spectacular. So you know, if you're signing a petition, read the whole petition. Not that I'm advocating that we need slaughterhouses or that we need to slaughter horses. Um, but, you know, if we're, if we're euthanizing horses, which any horseman has to do, we just, we have to think about the compassionate way to do it rather than kicking the can down the road. And I wanted to tell that story. And I thought that telling that story from the horse's point of view. The only really effective way to do it. So, A Dam Fine Hand started as a short story of that horse going through that experience, and I named the horse Con dios which is Go with God. And I realized that this horse was the best Buddhist that I'd ever met, alone <laughs> created in my life. That he truly lived in the moment, in the here and now, and he lived with true forgiveness. And the story grew from there. Grew from characters in that story. Um, to the people in his life who surrounded him and what their stories were.
0: And we can we can how do we order this book? How can we get this book?
1: You can go to adamfinehand.com and purchase a Kindle version of the book if you'd like to download it. Or you can contact um oh my gosh, I've forgotten the name of the bookstore here in town because that's where my mind is right now. Give me a minute and I'll think of it or well, I'll well, send it to you and we send can send it to it it us. We'll
0: put it in, in the yeah. links, but at yeah. yeah. damn I think we'll, we'll have yeah. that. We'll put that, we'll yeah. put that there yeah. too.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, one of the things with burnout that I find interesting is that we're surprised by it. Right. Ru- and we're outraged by it. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe I burned it. And I said, well, of course one burned out, you know, and of course one burns out regularly and often. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, it, it, and fires need to be relit. I, I I I say this as if it was obvious, but of course, you know, I myself had to spend 30 years before I tumbled to this. Um, that, of course, burnout's inevitable. And in fact, is often, I think, proof that you're doing very good work. Now, mums burn out because they're great mums. People burn out in their jobs because they're working very hard and, and, and doing a good job. But obviously, in, in, in this line of work with equine, anything equine, but particularly equine with vulnerable human populations, not to mention vulnerable equine populations, which of course you do. You also have this responsibility to keep everybody safe, mm-hmm. and so into the bargain, on top of how exhausting and demanding and absorbing and amazing and interesting and all this the work is, there is also this underlying stress constantly. Of I, I must keep everybody safe in a, in an environment that has many, many inherent risks, um, and take responsibility for those risks. So what often surprises me is that we have that no, no training is offered us or no mentorship is offered us, whether it's from our parents or in school or in college later or uh, that prepares us for the inevitability of burnout. And almost allows us to make friends with burnout and to say, mm-hmm. from time to time, you will burn out. And that's okay. Because really that's just says, now you need a pause between the last awesome thing and the next awesome thing that you're going to take on. You know, even, even Hercules rests between the 12 tasks. And uh, so given that, what's your advice for, particularly for younger people coming into this field? Um, because a lot of people come into it, obviously with a lot of altruism as, as, as one should altruism is a good thing. And then they of course get surprised. What's your advice to someone going into the field for how to thrive?
1: Help me pronounce his name because your French is way more sophisticated. Albert Camus, Camus, you, 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 Camus. Camus. Camus.
0: you, you hit it right. Camus.
1: Okay. Um, like a camel with a, a, ooh. <laughs> a camel with a, ooh. yeah. <laughs> A double, uh, uh, wrote an essay called
2: The Myth of Sisyphus that I'm a nerd and I love essays. And, um, it's the most beautiful story and, and, and write Sisyphus.
1: That was his, 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 his sentence, right? Is to roll this boulder up to the top of the hill. And it rolls back down every time. And he's, he's destined to have to do this over and over and over and over again. And uh, what Camus does is he said, what if we imagine Sisyphus is happy in his job, that it's the natural, normal thing. Of course the boulder rail- rolled down the hill. It's supposed to roll down the hill. And now he knows exactly what he needs to do. And so he stands at the top of the hill and he watches that boulder down
2: and he laughs. And he says, ah, I got to go back down the hill and get the boulder. That to me is the most beautiful
1: anti-burnout story there is. And, it, wow. and I review it. Interesting. I review it pretty regularly.
0: Thank you for the tip. Right. So the yeah. rolling up of the, the boulder is its own art form to be rolling
1: up. He knows what his work is, yeah. right? He knows exactly what he has to do. And how beautiful is that to know exactly what you have and to do? And perhaps
0: with every time he rolls it up, he notices more nuances of the stone yeah. or more nuances yeah. of the vegetation yeah. or s- strength in his body. or
2: He
1: chooses to be happy at his task. He chooses to find something interesting. He chooses to find... Some difference, something to learn, something about it. He chooses to be happy that he knows exactly what he needs to do. He has a choice, and he chooses happiness. A
0: lovely, lovely metaphor. I'm so going to steal it. Yeah, Yeah. enjoy it. Thank you. Because the you know obviously in all of our line of work we're dealing with burnout, whether it's ourselves or people we're working with or workshops we're giving or you know blah even with horses. Um, But yes. It's true. We do not stop to consider. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. We do not stop to consider that the beauty of starting again from scratch
2: mm-hmm.
0: every time. Um, like I know this as a writer. When I write a new book, it really doesn't matter how many books I've written. It doesn't matter if they were successful. It's that that you are starting from the beginning every time, and there's this feeling of oh. I thought I knew how to write and now it's like, uh, oh, it feels like rolling a up. Um Interestingly, I do not have that reaction when I'm starting new horses. I always have that thing of, oh, here I go again, interesting, you know, <laughs> you know. But what I've had to learn to do with writing is to say to myself when it feels Sisyphean, syisyp- 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 sy-syp- it's
2: a It's a It's a
0: It's a It covers with an U. When it feels that way, um, it's just to put one wo- well, I call it putting one word in front of the other and saying, well, uh-huh. this may be rubbish now, but it will not become good until it exists. So let it exist as rubbish and then I can make it good later. Um, we don't give ourselves that permission do we we we've got to be perfect <laughs> every time mm-hmm. but that's mm-hmm. where the dressage comes in 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 dressage. well you didn't execute that thing perfect as well of course i didn't because i'm going through a learning curve you know how, <laughs> how could i how could i possibly you know um and by the way i never will actually i'd like to move in that direction but none of us will ever achieve perfection um wh- and of course the joy is killed and you've talked about joy a lot and i love that you've brought into the citrus of fune, um, <laughs> Boulder rolling uphill thing that, that, that could actually be really joyful and to, to consider that rather mm-hmm. than saying this burnout thing is a dragon I must slay. Like this autism thing is a dragon I must slay. We know well, that will never work. Yeah. The autism is a perfectly viable way to go through life. Otherwise, Temple Grandin would not have all the degrees she had and hasn't not published all the books she has and is clearly she's very successful and autistic. So. The the burnout, is the, is the autism the problem? Is the burnout the problem? No, suffering is the problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's mm-hmm. the problem. The, the suffering brain, cortisol, stress hormone, learning brain is the happy brain. The unhappy brain is not the learning brain. But I love how you've just brought that to our attention. So how would you help an ambitious and impatient young person going into this field And and perfectionistic because most people are to come to that (laughs) sufficient outlook and um, perspective.
2: Give us a tip. I think think journaling is really critical um, because it gives you
1: an opportunity to make that choice, right? Of course, the boulder rolled down the hill again, it's supposed to. And it's going to the next time and the next time. And so you can stand at the top of the mountain and curse and yell and kick. Uh, but if you, if you journal it out, then you get the opportunity to reframe the situation and make a choice as to how you want to proceed and how you want to be perceived. You know, why are you in this field? And any of us in mental health, any of us in healing need to Think about why we're in the field, and we need to think about it regularly, so that we don't fall into the trap of pity and being condescending. Because once we're there, we're not helping anyone.
0: No, and and then of course we 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 very quickly slide into self pity Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. self condescending, which is beating (laughs) ourselves up. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I do agree with you. I think it's natural. I don't think one can. I don't think one can escape it, because I think that's part of the human condition, but perhaps one can learn to use it as a thriving mechanism.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, is this, is this the acquisition of wisdom? Is this the acquisition of, of resources and skills Does Sisyphus get a little buffer, richer, happier, healthier, fitter every time he rolls the boulder up Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: is the, is the rolling of the boulder up the, the thriving. And is the relaxed walk down? Could you be admiring the view? Could you be, is that, is that your, is that your retreat time?
2: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: W- just walking relaxed down the hill, swinging. I was whistling, smelling the herbs on the mountain, looking at the sea. Cause I've just placed myself in California and ancient Greece for some reason. And, <laughs> um, then, oh, look, here's a, a bouldering. <laughs> uh, also, oh,
2: the bouldering. Look, there it is. Oh, good time. There you are uh, again.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, humor. Humor helps, no? Humor helps. Tell me a funny story from Squarepack. <laughs> we have a little boy. Um, uh, he's adopted. His life before adoption pretty traumatic, and he's he's beautiful. He's just
1: he's just so damn cute and, uh, and very innocent looking. And when he's frustrated, he, he says some very bad words.
2: (laughs) Naughty words. Naughty words.
1: And he says them in context (laughs) and he sends them, which is really impressive. And his, his, his mom is wonderful. And she knows with him and, and, and he runs hard and he chases things and, this is a kid who can pluck a butterfly out of the sky. You know, he, what did he catch? We caught a quail with his hands. What? Yeah. 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 He, that um,
0: impossible that sister, sister, sister,
1: sister, it's very Like
0: I don't, I cannot imagine that.
1: We, I think you're a broadcast or something. Yeah. 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 Um,
0: 15 feet into there. I know how fast those things go. A quail. He,
1: he, caught, he caught a rubber boa. We haven't seen a rubber boa here. He has caught the um, snake. Skinks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He's caught little skinks. Um, I brought him to a place one time that had a little rabbit hutch in it and turned my head to do something, turned back. He was in the rabbit hutch, um, which is impressive. Uh, so you know he's super 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 physical, and so being on the horse, on the lunge, at the canner is really regulating for him. Lots of sleep problems, um, but he wanted to run around and you know and catch snakes. And his mother's like, "Look, naughty he's gone. word, yeah." And well,
0: is that is that is that the key? He shouts. He's very naughty, and the the snakes freeze in shock. And
1: no, but his mom I said you. he. He can't keep coming back unless he spends at least twenty five minutes on the horse. So we're trying to figure out how to how to do this without forcing him on the horse. <laughs>
0: why? Why does she say that out of interest? Why does it matter?
1: It it matters to her, and um, that's we've we've talked about it. But it it matters to her. Okay. And I think mostly because when he is on the horse, it's, it, it, it's demonstrable how much better he sleeps. Okay. Right. And. Their life is much better when he sleeps. Okay. Obviously, so, we told him that that the horse's back is a safe place where he can say anything <laughs> he wants.
0: <laughs> did he take that opportunity?
1: He did, and the problem is, it's really hard to keep lunging a pony when this adorable seven-year-old is going, mother, <laughs> beep beep. beep. Mother not, be- not a So we're trying not to fall on the ground, and we of course know that we're reinforcing the behavior by laughing. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. So, so now his mom comes back and she's like, "Look,
2: we're <laughs> heard, you know not, the pretty a- <laughs>
1: anyway. much." And and of course we we think that we you know really pulled off something great. So, but you know she she knows that he's going to get
2: in a lot of trouble, for um. Or, you know, saying bad words and for the mother thing. And, uh, so we
1: had to come up with secret swear words that were Ooh. so awful and so terrible Ooh. that, um, you know, they, they can only be spoken from the pony's back. And so as a staff, we would come up with these nonsense words and we would say them and we were just like, oh, you know, everybody was like, those
2: would you now you've a, got I this adorable
1: it? seven-year-old panning around going barf big
2: "Barfig again <laughs> Ooh, yeah. yeah i felt
0: a chill a
1: german is fantastic that way right yeah. yeah and then you would have to just like and then you would you would make it so that other people would be walking by and just like oh kind of flinch you know as he would say it because the payoff would be so big so we would, you know, it's been the whole week coming up with these, these terrible, terrible made up words. Um, but farfignugan is one of the best ones. And so even today, Farf- farfig- was months ago, we did this farfig- farfignugan. Yeah. Farfig-nugin.
0: That, that's, that's, remember- that's, oh, oh, that's, yeah. No, that yeah. definitely creases yeah. the spleen. Yeah. Absolutely. It does.
1: It does. <clears throat> yeah. You have to kind of wipe up after saying that. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: A confession. Yeah. Exactly. Bless me, Father, or I'm far-fing Nugent. Um, and it's just a funny, funny, funny oh.
1: story. And, and coming up with new words or just walking by him and leaning over and whispering in his ear, Dude, and Like running away and laughing.
0: You know, it's really interesting that because I remember with um, my son, Rowan, when he went through a phase now 10, 12 years ago, or wanting to say beep, 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 beep all the time. And we gave him a safe place to do it. And people said, you know, oh, he's going to just abuse that all the time. And yeah, there were a couple of times he said it in the wrong place, but actually what happened is he totally got it out of his system and um, we didn't make it a holy grail and we made it funny and we realized it was going to happen anyway. So we rather roll with it. But then I also taught him the history of those words because those are very old words in the English language. In fact, they sharpened Beowulf and uh, from the fifth century, you know, the first Poem in English, and it's in there, um, the, the one we all know, the fun one and, uh, fun. And, then, and then from there we could go into Anglo-Saxon history and the fall of the empire and you know blah blah blah, we could go further there, up into Norse history and the Norse gods, and it was, it was a really good way into all sorts of things, um, and then to reading the, the poem itself. Um, so what I love is that what you did is, as well as giving the safe space and the regulating behavior. And, He's now on the horse and having fun and sleeping, but also you've shown him social context. Mm -hmm. You've Mm -hmm. shown him in a really stealthy under the table sort of a way. So it's not going to be resisted. This is how you can be fun and a bit naughty in a social context that will be then rewarded and you won't be punished. And it's also inventive. But what I really love is you, you hit on a very key thing. Which I feel is often missing in the world of of equine assisted stuff. It's very bit of a serious world, Uh, and to the detriment. You know, I I think if you're working, particularly if you're working with kids, and if you're not laughing at least every couple of minutes, you're kind of in the wrong business. Any time one is using toilet humour or a four letter word or whatever, it's an act of rebellion, (laughs) and if a child is being told from day one, you're not right. You need therapy. That's why you are going to this square peg place or this. That's why you're going to this therapeutic running place or whatever. And they're also in all these other therapies and blah 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 blah. And you're not right. You're not right. You're not right. And you must do this. And you must do that. And did and it And their spirits get broken. You see this? They, what we call you know being therapied out. It's another form of burnout. And I know so few people who are able to restore the broken spirits of people, because it's not just kids who have been given a profound sense of shame about who they are. Mm -hmm. And the only way that's a form of oppression and the only way you can shake off the oppressor is to rebel, to break the chains. And often that's violently done. I mean, that's obviously what teenage rebellion is and so on. And, um, to give an outlet for that, where you can rebel in a constructive way that will not get you in trouble, will actually win you brownie points, but will restore your self-respect. That's genius. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because I don't know many people, Joel, who can do that, where you see the bigger picture, you follow where the child is at, you see what the dangers are. And you sidestep them by coming up with something inventive that negates
2: the negative side, but gives all the positive outcomes. It's genius. Um, are you training people at SquarePeg? Are you men? We are. Yeah. We've... How did somebody get trained or mentored by you? Mm. You know, the pandemic slowed
1: down a lot of the mentoring that I was doing for new programs, which I realized I really, really enjoyed. Um, I love travel. I love working with people with their horses and their facility and giving them license to learn the perfect Nugent game. But, you know, the pandemic slowed all of that down. But what it did was that I invested much more into our staff here and that and our horses here and we have some really brilliant humans working here and they're doing better work than i've ever done because of the work that has been done in the past because of spending what seven eight nine years with horse boy method and 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 uh and traveling around and seeing other world-class programs like this Kenneth. So I think that mentoring has been some of the most satisfying work I've ever done because I get to sit here and watch it bear fruit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we we grew a job training program for young adults with autism and got that funded through a regional center here. And um, most people in this field Especially if you're a
2: nonprofit, you will get a certain group of people who. I lost you again. Better, yeah. Got you back. Good. Can you hear okay. me? Yeah. Uh huh.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Um. Most people in the field. Uh, most
1: people in the field are going to get offers of people to volunteer. People who are a. It's usually going to be women in their forties, fifties. People who want to be back around horses haven't been around horses for a while. Um. They can be a tricky group to manage as volunteers. They have expectations, they have needs, they
2: have um, rules. Um, most of our young adults in our job training program
1: have been therapied out, like you said. People who have been told, you're not able to do this, you're not good at this, you're not quick at this, You there's this wrong with you, that wrong with you. Putting them in a position of power to supervise volunteers.
2: You put autistic young people in charge of bossy, horsey women? Yes. Yeah. Do you have this on video?
1: (laughs) With the ukulele soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It is really amazing. So the because.
0: the autists are training the neurotypicals This mm-hmm. Is what it
1: comes
2: mm-hmm. down to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good luck.
1: And the care that they take,
2: um, the uh, uh, it can be pretty brutal at times. Uh, um, mm-hmm. and
0: I, I I would yes. like to come and watch this as a
1: And it may sound cruel, but how cruel is it that? Yeah, I, it's just a role reversal, and it's yeah. it's it's really beautiful. And watching watching the person who is in charge of of training the neurotypical people, watching that kind of brutal supervision, soften over time, is really special, really, 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 really special. And it's it's one of the things I'm quite proud of.
0: Would you yeah. say that's the thing you're the most proud of this, this employment
2: step? I
1: think just developing our staff period, you know, and staff, meaning, you know, including our job training people has been
2: the thing I'm most proud of. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you talked about new locations. Um,
0: I happen to know because you told me that your are Half Moon Bay, your original location, mm-hmm. is about to change
2: mm-hmm.
0: in a rather exciting way. In a really you,
2: exciting way. Could you
0: tell us about that, please?
1: So we, we have worked a deal in our area of coastal Bay Area, California. Um, there is a subset of the national park system called the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and it's a sum total of, I think, Eight or nine um, big pieces of property from Sonoma, which is about 80 miles north of us. This piece of property we're going to talk about is the southernmost part, but it includes the Marin Headlands, which is the north part of the Golden Gate Bridge. It includes a lot of the, the north coast in Marin County. The Presidio of San Francisco is part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. And then this piece of property that we're moving to is called the Rancho Corral del Tierra. And it's 4,200 acres of coastal California. Um,
0: Can you see the ocean?
1: And You can. You can. Um, Yeah, so it's coastal. Monterra Mountain, we hiked it actually last week, is an 1,800-foot vertical gain to the top with a view of the entire Bay Area, including... Um, Mount Tamalpais, Mount Hamilton, the top of the Golden Gate Bridge, and all the way down to Pescadero. If you look on a map, it's some of the most stunning landscape you can ever imagine. And the the, the trails are maintained by the Department of the Interior. There's actually a state park right next door, so it's even more than 4,200 acres worth of trails.
0: And you can access all this with your with your and autistic glance. With your good yeah, lord,
1: yeah. So we are we're um right now the herd is split we have 6 horses here in Half Moon Bay and 6 in the Rancho Corral del Tierra and so we do sessions all day and then we run over and we just get and it's it's mostly the thoroughbreds that are at the rancho right now getting them out on the trail and just getting used to you know there's going to be loose dogs cuz it's a park there's going to be mountain bikes and just exploring trail loops that are going to be appropriate for different clients we can actually in about ten minutes' ride from the from where the horses are, we can be at the local elementary school. So we're looking at uh, engaging programs there. Um, parents can go for a hike and a picnic while their family members ride. It is, you know, the ability to get out into stunningly beautiful natural spaces is is so exciting. So, this so is,
0: exciting! This is this is genius because obviously for so many. Of us in the field, the idea of a barn and the barn has the land that it has it might be large, might be small.
2: Mm-hmm. But
0: usually, the the program is contained
2: right. often,
0: often in an arena, which isn't you know ideal because it's a sterile environment. Yeah. And you are now able to get out into all this public land with your clients.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that was the thing is you know this is Silicon Valley, so real estate is cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah and uh and it's uh, you know nobody was jumping up and wanting to give us 20 acres and even if they did as you know um just maintaining your own trails suddenly yeah. takes away so much from your program yeah um and um so now somebody else has to manage the trails and maintain them um and we can focus on programs and we can focus on horse care and we can focus on 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 just getting people access to this in, in property that is meant to be shared and mm. we're bringing a population into the national park that is not traditionally, you know, participated in national parks. So the national park has a feather in their cap that they're reaching out to vulnerable populations that normally wouldn't access the park. Um, so, so,
0: perhaps so it's really something, a win-win. You know, you talk about mentoring, would you say actually now, Yeah. To would you recommend that um, people who are running programs reach out to the public recreational land, organizations in the area and see, can we do our work in these areas? Because that's really where these people need to be, right? Is out in that type of nature.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And
0: we know that nature deficit disorder is a thing. Um,
1: And we know that horses are a part of the American heritage story. A, a deep important part and so integrating horses into public parks and public trail systems is 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 an important way to preserve that history and we can sell that to communities we can sell that to the organizations that own the parklands we can sell that and and be able to focus our efforts and our and our resources in programs and i think it's really exciting um i think that Doing really innovative public and and, and nonprofit partnerships is, is a way to go. And of course, I learned that from the great David Doyle.
0: Yeah. Who we will have on this, uh, if we can persuade him to talk, the man has an allergist. <laughs> For those who, who do not know, David Doyle is, and you should tune into the David David Doyle is actually the Wizard Merlin, disguised as uh, an middle-aged Irishman um, who runs the extraordinary Liskinet farm in County Limerick, um, one of the most extraordinary autism and mental health with horses facilities that exists anywhere in the world. I think we all look up to him and I'll be definitely, just look for where I have him on on the podcast. You do want to listen to David Doff. Um, one of the things which we're often talking about in this walk of life is how important environment is. And of course, you know, riding arenas are often sterile, smell bad. Yes. Sometimes if the weather is really bad, okay, then that's where we have to be, but we can bring the forest in perhaps, or put trees in there, like we put jumps or be imaginative about how we use the arena. But one would so much rather not. And, you know, you talk about, you've got access to this land and I can just hear now some people saying, oh, but you know, we're, we're in Europe or wherever, and we don't have access to that. And I would always challenge that actually. So for example, where we are in Germany, um, we don't even own our own place, we're, we're renting boxes, um, but the land around us, there is free access on all the trails, it doesn't matter who owns it, you can ride across it, you can ride into the forest, so of course that's where we do our work. And I'll say to parents, okay, meet me in that car park, I'll be over there with the horses to meet you, and we go to this lovely spring in the forest or to this... Lovely little playground we've set up because we hang silk hammocks from the trees or whatever or whatever to think outside of arenas. Um, and the fact that you've now done this in public land, I think is a real, um, inspiration for others to follow to please think. We take think outside the box, think outside the arena and think outside of your own property boundaries. Is there national forest near you? Is there a public park near you with a swing set? that you don't have to raise 200,000 to put in because you could just go there and meet the kids and play there with your horse. Or can you use the resources, the outdoor resources that are in the area? And boy, oh boy, are you doing that? Um I cannot wait to to come check it out. Can people... When I first met you all those years ago, you were operating out of a trailer in mm-hmm. a very confined riding arena which or riding school boarding barn, really, which did have access up a very, very steep, very difficult to get up trail to some <laughs> open hill area. But, you know, most of what was going on was confined to an arena and with <laughs> and I've, then I saw you sort of expand out to a more spacious property, but it was still um, relying on what that property had within its boundaries. And now you, it seems you've expanded through just sort of a leap of imagination to completely unlimited
2: natural sort of Eden type playground. Is this something we could all do? Do you think? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I we had been
1: searching for about two years and I was pretty close to a deal on what looked like was gonna be a really nice deal. Uh, it was part of a sport horse breeding farm, really nice farm. And she wanted to lease us or sell us a portion of it. And she, she really wanted to make the deal work. And, and it just wasn't right in my gut. And I, and I couldn't figure out why. And, um, and David Doyle and his wife, Maura, were visiting and I sat him down and I said, you know, I, there's just, I, I don't know why I'm not feeling so confident about this and he said well i'll tell you why you're not feeling confident about it you have 140 families on a waiting list for services and you would be moving to a place that is as big as where you are now there's no room to grow
2: and i said oh you're right (laughs) you know um he said you need you need You need to know
1: exactly what the criteria is for a property and the property will find you. You know, it's a square peg story, right? I was trying to make an opportunity that we had fit and instead I needed to reverse that and I needed to, I needed to know what the dream was and then let that property find me. It's a leap of faith that I didn't like taking. I like being in control of things. Um but I came home from Ireland and I was waiting for my bags in the airport and the phone rang. And I had talked about this property that we're we're moving to a couple of years ago with the with the woman who owns the the lease on it. And we decided that it wasn't private enough. And so we'd given up on it. And she calls me and she says, you know, I know that we talked about Ocean View Farms um, a couple of years ago, but I can't get Square Peg out of my mind. And it turns out that traditionally everything behind the arena had horses in it, but we haven't had horses there for years. What if we did a custom build out for you? And then you would have all the privacy you need and have all the access to the trails. Would that work? Yeah. Yeah, that would work. So, so there you go. That's whether you call that manifesting or just dumb luck. Uh, it so, wasn't until I knew exactly what we wanted in a facility that I was able to find it
2: or
0: so tr- for it find us. Dream the dream and let the dream find you. Mm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Words to live by. Yeah, Yeah. And proved out. Wow. Proved out. So if
0: people yeah. want to come to Square Peg, And be mentored in
2: how to create square pegs or how to have more square peg than what they already do. Um, can they do that? Can they contact you? They can. They can. Yeah. It's going to be a
1: little wild and woolly until summer with us, you know, moving and getting reestablished. But we're really hoping by summer that we'll be able to, um, we'll be able to actively mentor people it's something that gives us a lot of satisfaction Um, and and it it feels like that's one of the the best ways to send those waves out into the world
0: okay so we will be putting in the links how to contact you joel yeah with your permission and if people would like to go and be mentored by the amazing joel dunlap which i certainly have been i would recommend it it seems to get one to rather lovely places. If nothing else, it's a great excuse to go and check out that
2: property. Um, So it's been an amazing story. It's been an honor to talk
0: to you. And as long as I've known you, there were still aspects of the story that were unknown to me and gaps that you filled, which I find fascinating. What would you
2: leave us with? What are your parting words of wisdom for us? i well done that, or Square Peg Foundation, or us in the equine assistant world.
1: My favorite go-to whenever I am confused by a horse or a family that I'm working with that I come back to is is three really simple words, and that's always assume intelligence. And that has guided me through some. Big decisions. I'll leave that open ended and for whatever interpretation. Or far fignocan. Yeah. I, I was yeah. just thinking
0: I'll try that with my morning <laughs> affirmations in front of the mirror. Look at myself and go, <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> But very practical. Always a human intelligence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I would agree. Yeah.
0: Um I never met anybody who was or any other organism that was unintelligent except in my own limited view
2: of them it was my limited view. and when
1: i shipped there i i come to much more compassionate decisions mm. less frustration
2: yeah mm, mm, mm. yeah looking for the the beauty of rolling the rock up the hill
1: mm.
0: not
2: the earth or down yeah or mm. down or the walk down with the nice sea view. With the thank nice you. sea view. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Joelle. It's oh. late for you. Thank you for staying
1: up.
0: Oh, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. We're on different time zones. We will put links to square peg, damn fine hand, Valenza method and other resources from this plus how to contact Joelle and get mentored by her and go and check her amazing place out in the links. Until next time, we'll be seeing you in the equine assisted world because it's where we hang out for our sins. <laughs> Joel, thank you so much. It's been, it's been.
2: Thank you. Oh,
0: okay. See you next time.
2: Okay. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horse Boy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy to do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to RupertIsaacson.com. See you on the next show and please remember to press subscribe and share.